Uh, my name is Al Gosels. I'm, I'm a professor in the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my pleasure today to introduce to you Dr. E. Bruce Heilman uh, and, and his address. Uh, before I do that, I want to give you a little context for why we are here. You are actually attending my class on Theories and Models of Leadership, a required junior course, and today's topic is military leadership. And I met with Dr. Heilman a couple of months ago to ask whether he would kindly come visit my class and talk about military leadership as he has in the past. And he said that he would be delighted to do that. Uh, and as we talked about the topic, uh, he mentioned things like why people die for their country. And I knew this was gonna be a very special talk. And as tempted as I was to hoard it for myself and for my students, it seemed like a good idea to open it up. And with the uh, help and cooperation of Dean Sandra Peer to the Jepson School of Leadership, and, and, and Shannon Best, uh, who's Associate Director for External Affairs um, and um, Special Events. Uh, we've opened it up so that all of you can, can be here. Um, in addition to my students, could you just stand, stand up so that people can see how pretty you are? And, 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 and <laughs> It's really all about them, and they know that line comes from Muhammad Ali talking about how pretty he is. So we've talked about that, and 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 also three three guests um, from the ROTC faculty here: uh, Lieutenant Scott Davis, um, Master Sergeants David Kelly and Tyler Chubb. Could you please stand stand up and be recognized? Now, I, I want to be brief in, in, in introducing Dr. Heilman so we can get on with it. I'll, I'll mention two things. Uh, he was president of the University of Richmond from 1971 to 1986, and then again from 1987 to 1988 um, as a as he was called, called, called back into, into service. Um, secondly, uh, once and always a Marine, uh, he is the spokesman for the our greatest generation foundation and the spirit of, of 45. Um, unfortunately, I don't have time to talk about the time he danced with Betty Davis or was <laughs> called to um, be inspected by President Roosevelt because of his uh, top score as a marksman or his two trips across country visiting all 50 states on his Harley in recent years. Um, uh, or the fact, I think, that, that uh, it's, it's important that we all recognize that he was actually uh, the, the first interim dean of the Jefferson School of Leadership Studies and, 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 and very much helped shape it. Uh, he is a true treasure, as you all know, of the University of Richmond, and I'm delighted that he can be here today to address us on why they never talked about it. Please welcome Chancellor E. Bruce Hama. A man stood at the pearly gates, his face was scarred and old. He stood before the gate of fate for admission to the fold. What have you done, St. Peter asked, to gain admission here? I've been a college president, sir, for many, many a year. Pearly gates swung, swung open wide, St. Peter touched the bell. Come in, he said, and choose your harp. You've had your time in hell. <laughs> Professor Gothel, 
Dean Pert, members of the class before me, they've been co-mingled now with others, but I've met most of them. I'm teaching them today. During my early days as president of two institutions of higher learning, a total of 22 years, beginning 54 years ago, during the Vietnam conflict, I experienced the wrath of young people in college. Thus, the verse just cited fit the situation back then. Many college and university campuses were in turmoil. There were sit-ins, demonstrations, even buildings being burned as students disrupted normal activities of a college or university. It was not a pretty situation. A fellow president died of a heart attack when he was facing the hostility of rebelling students. But today, as an invited lecturer to a class that's before me here, several, taught by Professor Gothel, I present to the students evidence of a much more consequential conflict. As the national spokesperson for the Greatest Generation Foundation, I suggested that we expand this, and we were agreed to the professor and the dean of the leadership school as a means of honoring veterans, a substantial number of who are with us today, including one other World War II veteran. Glad you came. He said, didn't want me to feel lonely. <laughs> my presence as your speaker is unique because my age sets me aside from most anyone else in the audience except number one. Few other World War II veterans are commanding such podiums. Over 99% of the 16 million who served are deceased and the few thousand remaining are dying at about 5,000 more a month. While I am 92 years of age, most World War II veterans are even older. Five years from now, substantially all of us will be gone, so you caught me just in time. <laughs> my age might suggest that I address you while sitting down, but that would defeat my purpose of keeping you awake just to see whether I'm still standing when I finish. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I received a letter concerning the annual reunion of my Marines from combat on Okinawa. Three more had passed away, and we were down to eight from the original several hundred. I had to speak, I was told, because I was the only one who could stand up long enough. <laughs> Having lived through the Great Depression, as well as World War II, I carry with me impacting experiences unique in history. The spirit of the World War II generation can only be understood within the context of the Great Depression. It was the war that finally extricated the country from that nightmare. The hardships suffered through those years in many ways prepared us for the challenge of the world at war. My father was a tenant farmer, a sharecropper, who raised tobacco and shared half with the, of the income with the landowner and produced much of our annual income so that to protect the crop from being stolen, at age 15, I slept in the barn between bales of hay with a 12-gauge shotgun pointed to the door to deprive and discourage anyone who might have taken our annual income in the way of the tobacco after it was stripped. At age 17, I traded that shotgun for an M1 rifle in the Marine Corps. 
When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, they not only destroyed most of our fleet, they also destroyed the Great Depression. Immediately, our economy took off and our country gained strength of a kind it could never have anticipated. We put to rest the challenges of the two countries that would have put us all in chains. The news of Marines dying by the thousands as they fought on Pacific Islands braced us, recruits, for the demanding discipline that we would need to endure. They sought to take away our civilian identity and make us function as automatically in response to commands as was possible. The recruiting sergeant asked whether we had any scars or birthmarks or other unusual features. When asked why such a question was necessary, the sergeant replied, so they can identify you on some Pacific island after the Japs blast off your dog tags. I proudly affirm that I have served my country. I went to war willing to give my life if necessary, and the 16 million who served in World War II with me would affirm a similar disposition. I have spent five years traveling by motorcycle all over this country, approximately one 100,000 miles through all 50 states, representing Gold Star families. I have had wreaths, laid wreaths at their monuments. I've dedicated monuments in their honor. In doing this, I have learned that they want the world to know that the death of their family member deserves more than a simple pause. Thus, to the extent that you may not now know and be sensitive, I hope to make you more sensitive to what Memorial Day is all about, what gold stars mean, and to emphasize why they didn't talk about it and what it's like to die for your country. Honoring those who gave their lives is one thing, but understanding the true significance and sacrifices conveys an impression of reality to the gold stars, the monuments, and Memorial Day, we have to treat them seriously, and I think you will be more serious. My subject this afternoon, why they didn't talk about it, identifies with the fact that veterans of World War II came home, went to work, or to college, married, found a job, and went about the business of living. They didn't prolong what they had been doing, and they just entered another phase of life. Not enough time to talk too much about anything. The wife said, my husband never talked about it. The mother said, my son never talked about it. The grandchildren said, my grandpa never talked about it. Now that most of the 16 million veterans are deceased, their offspring are anxious to know what they never talked about and why. Last week, I spoke by phone to a 95-year-old World War II Marine friend of mine from Utah, with whom I hadn't talked in 20 years. I dialed a number which I had retained all these years. When I received an answer, I inquired whether this was Kenneth Brown. His answer was, it all depends on who's calling. <laughs> When I gave my name, he immediately acknowledged our past relationship. He and I had returned to Iwo Jima 60 years after the battle. While there, he told me in vivid language about serving with the chaplains and in helping the mortally wounded to die. 
because there was no possibility that they were going to live. There were no helicopters to ferry them to hospital ships as it would be true today. Just getting to the beach without being killed was a risk. Along with Kenneth, many of my own platoon members fought and died on Iwo Jima, and while I didn't hit the beach, I did hit the runway as I experienced an airplane crash and survived the destruction of a twin-engine transport plane to also become an Iwo Jima survivor. The Marines on Iwo Jima received 27 medals of honor for the ferocity of their engagement in raising that flag, a picture never to be forgotten. Many never lived even to know about the recognition. Only one of the Medal of Honor winners lives today, Woody Williams, whose heroic actions saved many lives and thus the recognition of the nation's highest award. He and I worked together on establishing these gold star monuments. We don't honor these heroes by sugarcoating or soft peddling their sacrifices. Marshmallow words cannot represent the severity of their engagement in conflict with the enemy. So as I convey their experiences and why they didn't talk about it, I apply vivid terminology from my Marine Corps friend who worked with the chaplain to bring the individual Marines who were in their last hours of living to the point of their life's ending. So I asked Kenneth whether I might share some of his articulated commentary. I'll be proud, he said, because I think the world needs to know what war is all about and the price of preserving freedom and about commitment to our country and a willingness to die for it. So I present to you what Kenneth experienced when he was helping those severely wounded to breathe their last breath while they conveyed what they wanted communicated to their parents, wives, girlfriends, or others in view of their imminent death. Not only did those supervising their death know they were gonna die, they knew they were gonna die. These Marines tended to be, this is the surprise to most, 18 and 19 years of age. How do I know that? Many were my friends and I was 18 when I landed later on the Battle of Okinawa. So I quote my friend Kenneth Brown following our conversation last week, believing that the truth will give everyone a greater appreciation for the sacrifices of those who gave their lives that we might remain free. I got my first taste of blood and dying, Kenneth said, while still on the troop ship waiting for my wave of Marines to go ashore on D-Day plus one. The wounded were being brought on board our troop ship because we had a doctor in a small sick bay. The chaplain and I stood by to help bring these boys up the side of the ship and hoist the stretcher onto the deck. It was a hellish task because they couldn't help being bounced around. The morphine had worn off and they were screaming an unbelievable pain. Many died before the doctor could get to them. Knowing that they couldn't live long, some wanted to leave messages for their loved ones. I copied what they had to say, and the chaplain and I carried out their wishes by getting these messages to their families. 
As we were landing on the beach, shells from Navy ships were flying overhead. It seemed that the terrible bombardment from over 500 ships would certainly have wiped out the enemy, but it didn't. They were all underground. There were plenty of the 22,000 cracked Japanese troops waiting for the boats bringing Marines where, uh, with instructions in their caves on the wall to kill 10 Marines before giving up their lives. As we were being pulled toward the black sand, the boat next to us took a direct hit. Men were floundering and being sucked under their, with their heavy packs. We Marines yelled at our coxman to turn back and let us help save whom we could. He didn't pay attention, saying only that his orders were to get us ashore as soon as without delay. I felt bad about leaving those men to die, but also hoped the mortar shell wouldn't get us. When I stepped ashore, I thought that the Marines had lost the battle and that everyone had been killed because the Japanese had zeroed in on every inch of the beach and systematically covered it with machine gun and mortar fire. Those who had survived from the day before had tried to dig foxholes but found little escape from the murderous fire. A medical corpsman yelled for me to give him assistance with a wounded man who had just taken a mortar shell to the chest. I crawled in the foxhole of the corpsman, took out the morphine, and helped as best I could. I could actually see the mortar shells coming in and soon learned to distinguish their shells from ours being fired over our heads from batteries on the shore. As a shell would land, the corpsman would move to the crater as quickly as possible, trying to separate the dead from the living and then help the wounded. They needed stretcher bearers to take those badly injured either to the beach to be evacuated or to the battalion aid station for emergency treatment. So I spent my first day trying to dodge the mortar shells as I have give plasma and carry stretchers. I was never quite able to forget the faces of those men they carried on stretchers. They had looked to be about 16. While on this detail, I learned that a lot of blood can leak out of a body that has been half cut in two by machine gun fire. The dead were everywhere and were left where they had fallen. Machine gun fire kept them from going after them. The corpsmen had frantically tried to get the badly wounded to the shoreline where they could be evacuated to designated ships. Kenneth remembers seeing one of those noble Navy corpsmen who, on his second day without sleep, was sitting on the sand in a daze completely overwhelmed and unable to function. There are a number of things associated with battle which writers correspondents and movie makers simply find impossible to convey or to communicate to those who haven't experienced war firsthand. The first is sound or noise. In this area, I'm not referring to the usual sounds of gunfire, bombs, explosions, which can be easily described or duplicated. These sounds are horrible and frightening enough but the sounds which have haunted me from the beginning, and I still haven't wiped away from my memory, were the screams and the moans, the outlandish cries, 
of the wounded and dying. Because our battlefield was so small, eight square miles, there was no such thing as a rear area and we were always on the front lines. Casualties were so high, one out of three, that's 7,000 killed out of 22 of fighting the Japanese early on. Corpsmen were not adequate in number to treat the wounded, thus they could only cry out in their agony. The stoic Japanese wounded were also not able to suppress their screams of pain no matter how hard they tried. To those of us who were listeners, these shouts, curses, screams, and groans were constant day and night and were indistinguishable as to enemy, comrades, or outfits. Another indescribable, everywhere present aspect of combat was the smell. Again, I don't refer to the smells usually associated with battle, such as gunpowder, bombs, shell fire, and rockets, which might come to mind. These smells were certainly abundant at Iwo Jima and were evidence of a ferocious battle. However, these smells were tolerable. The smells I refer to as indescribable were those of rotting, decaying, and sometimes burning human flesh. These smells were intolerable, but inescapable and wholly nauseous. There simply is nothing so offensive to the senses as that of dead bodies ripening in the sun. I had ample opportunity to reawaken that remembrance, he said, when I was sent to Nagasaki, Japan, a few days after the bomb. I had a similar experience when I went to Hiroshima. The graves registration people did a heroic job on Iwo trying to take care of the dead as soon as possible, but it too was overwhelming. The dead Japanese were hastily thrown into caves and crevices and bulldozed over. The Americans, as soon as it was safe to do so, were carefully carried to division cemeteries and buried in separate graves in long trenches that had been bulldozed out. At the end of the battle, appropriate dedication of the cemeteries took place. Because of the violence of the battle, many bodies were simply beyond recovery, and so bits and pieces continued to smell up the island for a long time after it was declared secure. Over the entire island was a haze and a smoke giving irritation to the eyes and difficult breathing. The last thing I shall mention, which has not been properly portrayed in writing or on film, has to do with the process of dying from battle wounds. Dying on the battlefield is often a long and drawn out affair. The Marines on Iwo were well conditioned. All of my buddies from boot camp were there, I know how well conditioned. And perfect health and had much to live for. I was surprised to learn how much it took to kill one of them. I've seen them with the whole lower part of their bodies blown away and they would still talk coherently for a time. The legs of a man would be gone and he would still ask for a cigarette. I could not see how many of those men who were shot up so badly could live, but they did. God made the human body to take a lot of punishment. Too bad Iwo Jima had to subject so many strong young men to an impossible level of recovery. 
At night, the enemy crept across the airfield and rolled grenades at us. The mortar fire never ceased. The standoff between the Marines and Japanese was not unlike what transpired at Gettysburg during the Civil War. Thus, it was with my fellow Marine, Kenneth Brown, who trained as I did, perhaps with me, with the expectation of hand-to-hand -hand combat being told that unless we hated the enemy, we couldn't thrust that blade through his body. We were aware that we were hated by the enemy, and we went off to war knowing somebody wouldn't come back. One of my high school classmates went down with the Indianapolis. Another was killed on Iwo Jima, and several on Okinawa. Kenneth wrestles, as I have over the years, with the thoughts years later of why the boat next to mine was sunk and ours was left floating. Why did the mortar shells on the black beach land on all four sides of my foxhole instead of hitting mine dead center? What did I later, why did I later step over the mine which took out the fellow walking behind me? Why was I spared from the machine gun and rifle fire which wiped out most of the replacement company to which I was assigned. During those last days, when I was on Jeep patrol, bringing back the dead to the cemetery, why didn't the enemy howitzer zero in on me instead of the vehicles both in front and behind? The answer to these and similar questions were not to be found in the sands and volcanic ridges of Iwo Jima 60 years later, when Ken and I went back together to Iwo Jima to commemorate the dead Marines and the dead Japanese as friends after we fought with hatred for each other. Ken says that although I had a feeling of appreciation for having been an Iwo Jima survivor, I could not help but think of all the young men who had died there many 18 and 19 years old, who never had a chance to get married or have children or have a full life, I left in tears. Many of Ken's friends and mine died 70 plus years ago on Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And if you have seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, you learned about the Battle of Okinawa. Here I am 73 years later with 27 descendants, 30, 15 of them spiders. I've had a full life. I've enjoyed an education. I've had a fruitful experience. Why me? Why am I still living? Many times I've asked that question. I could have been killed on an island along with my fellow Marines. Today I live because the atom bomb saved my life, having expected to die in the invasion of Japan. One can almost feel selfish for surviving. Had I died invading Japan, 27 of my offspring would have never been born. Following the war years and upon returning home, I quote from my memoirs, despite the long months of anticipation my home stay was sometimes difficult as I tried to wipe away from my memory all that I had witnessed of destruction, hunger, disaster, and death. I felt tension in the freedom that I had looked forward to regaining. 
It was that I did not want to talk about it, but to others only who has had similar experiences and therefore would understand. As spokesman for the Greatest Generation Foundation, I interact regularly with veterans. I try to represent those who gave their lives as well as those who survived. Along with them, I'm pleased to be an Iwo Jima survivor rather than one of the thousands killed fighting there. In five years, most World War II veterans will be gone, they, or they'll be out of functioning condition, unable to communicate as I am with you today. But in the meantime, the words of the old warrior in Tennyson's Ulysses ring true for the veterans of World War II as he admonishes his compatriots to keep the pace in spite of their years. We, the World War II generation of veterans, likewise aren't ready to fade from the scene as we reflect with pride upon our past and look forward with anticipation to a few more months or years, drawing from Ulysses' words to his compatriots, how dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine with use, as though to breathe were life. Old age has yet its honor and its toil. Some work of noble worth may yet be done. Come, my friends, it's not too late to seek a newer world. Push off in sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows, for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great Achilles whom we knew. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we're not now that strength which in past years moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive to seek to find and not to yield. The next time you encounter or read about a gold star family. Remember what it's like to die for your country and know that only freedom is worth such a sacrifice. Those who believe that life without freedom is intolerable, remember that the willingness to accept the risk of the ultimate sacrifice is the price of that freedom. This likely will be the last time you'll hear anything so vivid as this from a World War II veteran. I, I may be the final World War II veteran to speak from this podium. With thanks to Ken Brown, whose well-crafted words restated to me last week conveys why many never talked about experiences that did not fit social customs or table talk. Knowing now what it's like to die for your country, you understand why they never talked about it. And while it's not pretty, it's reality rather than fantasy. So I conclude with a tribute to those Marines in World War II, as well as veterans of all services in all wars, where all gave some and some gave all, to guarantee that we're privileged to live in a free society. When asked often 
whether the young people of today would rise to the defense of their country as we did, I respond giving similar circumstances. I have no doubt that freedom to them is just as important as it is to us and was to us and that this class before me to which I'm lecturing would respond accordingly. Yes, our nation will remain free as long as it's the home of the brave. And to all you veterans present, a special recognition and thanks for your service and thanks for listening. Uh, Dr. Hammond, thank you again for your time. Um, the first one has to do with sort of imperatives of command that we spoke about in military leadership. I wanted your take on whether you felt that relationship um, among superiors uh, with yourself was more important or uh, some sort of reward and punishment, uh, which would be the sanction portion of what we talked about in military leadership. You have just discovered one of the things I carried back from World War II, hard of hearing. And I'm going to have the professor kind of restate that. And literally, that's one of the many things that my age and beyond, we go to the Veterans Administration if they've uh, approved us for that. And my hearing and a few other things they've approved. And I need to go next week for new hearing aids. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, uh, in terms of, you, uh, of your relationship with your superiors and your willingness to obey, what is more important, your personal relationship with them or the fact that they have the authority to reward and punish your behavior? That's an interesting way to put the question. I never thought that I was following the orders because they might punish me. I was following the orders because the Marine Corps manual says you to follow the orders. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, we never turn to the other option. You respected the military is an organization unlike any other, and I see my doctor here is a Navy man, and there are different ones here today from different services. I have, I honestly have never heard, maybe they just didn't talk to me, any veteran, I know it's absolutely true of the Marine Corps, but I think it's true of veterans in general, who would say that they never received any benefits from being in the military. Everybody says, it transformed my life. Now you risk dying, but if you lived, it nothing else 
maybe your marriage, if you had a good one, but the military taught you things you would never have learned. You gave it an option you never gave to anybody else, and you came out a different person. Just one example, I flunked out of high school. Four years in the Marine Corps caused me to reconstitute myself and to decide maybe education wasn't so bad after all. Because <laughs> I had written in my book, and those who've read it said to my mother, while my two brothers go off to college, I guess I'll just be relearning to do farm work because I've had all the education I can stand. Well, after that, I went to college and graduate school and spent my whole life in education. Where did that come from? It came from the military, it came from the Marine Corps, it came from World War II because you are put in the context of the world of all sorts of things you would never be engaged with or people or responsibilities, the, the military. We are free today because we have a strong military. If we ever get a weak military, there's some strong ones out there waiting for us. So I hope I've left some messages today in that regard. One more from the students. Um, hi. So uh, my question is, to what extent does strong military leadership help members of the military overcome many of the adverse situations you have described? Did the military help me to overcome them? Mm -hmm. No, we read all, lots of times about what fear is and that we presume, I guess, that people who are invading beaches and jumping out of airplanes in Normandy and riding ships that are being torpedoed have no fear. We all have fear. We just have a commitment to overcome it and to deal with our responsibility, which is the greater part of the charge that to us is important, our country. Marines, and I won't discount that Army doesn't do, on Okinawa we had the Army on one side of the road and the Marines on, I know how hard they can fight. But you fight because you would be embarrassed for your fellow Marines or your fellow uh, Army or Navy people to see you back off because you were afraid to move forward. A lot of these things are just part of being on a team. It's like an athletic team. They play their best because they don't let down the fellow players, football or whatever else. So the military causes you to give to the maximum. I've got a sheet uh, that we use in the Marine Corps from the, about 19 or 20 different things. You're never too tired to do one more thing. I mean, stuff like that. You don't get that even on the farm, except your dad saw to it you did one more thing anyway. <laughs> but the principles of not only service and survive, and, um, but that which is within you, a commitment to fulfill to the maximum, to not disappoint the people who trust in you, to live with integrity against things you might be uh, inclined to do otherwise. A person of 
statue in the world, not for its own uh, gratification, gratification, but in the eyes of the world to be someone that can be trusted. Truth, trust, and all the rest, not just somewhere in Sunday school, in most all of the military or in every military organization. Those principles are there. You already know that, the ROTC folks. So you get a wonderful uh, response from it. I always want to add, because this should never be left out, my father would have never been in the military. He was at an age he didn't have to come in, but he was a farmer. If we hadn't had farmers back home, we people in the military couldn't afford a war. If we hadn't had merchants keeping business going, if we hadn't had women building airplanes. So when I talk about the greatness of our military, we also have a great civilian backup. Our country, our democracy, sometime in this day and time, we may wonder, but we can all come together when it's compelling enough to see that someone's gonna take it all away from us, then we come together and see it doesn't happen. Other, other, other questions? Yeah, I have one. Uh, happy birthday, Deborah Rain. Uh, Semper Fi. Well, I don't, I, I won't go into a lot of detail, but I'll make it concrete. He's put at the top of all of our military three Marines of general level experience. I feel pretty good about that, and he apparently delegates to them, and I think that's what we'll do. So I, I believe that the commitment politically as well as otherwise, is to rebuild, if it needs to be rebuilt, to, to continue to have a strong military. And if I might, Professor, interject one thing here to be sure we don't overlook the veterans here. I wanna just tell a story. There are a lot of alumni here and a lot of military here. Back 44, 34 years ago, the Marines in Beirut, Lebanon, were terrorized with a truckload of explosive in the night. 200 of them were blown out of their barracks. We had a graduate of the university there. He wrote me a letter, and uh, I had it published in the Collegian, the student newspaper. And the students were very much impressed and the faculty that here a graduate, he survived that blast and then a little, because I sent him a copy of the student newspaper. A little later, he called me and said, I'm leading a group of helicopters over Richmond. And I don't know whether half a dozen of them or 12. 
and he was flying one of them, and I've asked if we could land on the Richmond campus, and our superior officers decide that wouldn't be good. <laughs> but we're gonna fly over the campus. So I got the exact date, and I passed out a request to all the faculty. So some of the faculty or students might be here. And I said, we have a graduate. He survived Beirut. He's flying over. Let's turn out classes. Let's get out on the campus and wave at them as they come over. Well, the students came out and they had sheets, welcome home, Dan, and so forth. And I had a letter later. And pro professors don't always think presidents are so wise in their decisions. <laughs> uh, but here was a letter after the fact. And this professor's deceased. His son's also a graduate here. Dear Dr. Hyman, this is not an easy letter for me to write since I'm trying to deal with an emotional context by using the unwritten, the written word, and words just don't do the situation justice, but I'll try. I thought the welcome home, Dan, assembly was terrific. From a professor to the president, that's pretty good. <laughs> I got a secondhand phone message that an almost, that an alumnus of UR is going to fly over in a helicopter and Dr. Hyman would like as many as possible to go out in the quadrangle at about 11 and wave to him. My immediate thought focused on a, a corporate executive, big donor, friend of the university. I was not especially enthralled with the notion of waving to him, but I'm not real stupid either. <laughs> After all, I'm typing this on a computer of which it's being paid for by the university. I enjoy many other amenities that result from fundraising. I'm willing to do my part to ensure the financial position at the university enjoys, so I went out to wave. Then I spoke with you. That's me. <laughs> and I learned that this was a ceremony for Dan Keenan, U of R 78, Captain U.S. Marine Corps, who was returning from Beirut. My heart honestly swelled with pride. I am, of course, proud of my country. I'm an old-fashioned flag waver and happy to be one. I'm proud of the Marines and I'm proud of Captain Keenan. But most of all, in situations like this, and they are not infrequent, even if they are not unusual or usually so sharp and intense, I came to grips with my pride in my university, one which I believe to be a very special kind of place. My thoughts went to Dan and then to the other nine or so Marines on board those helicopters. They're bound to ask, what kind of university would do this? I'm confident that Captain Keenan can tell them and that what he tells them will accurately provide the basis of my pride in U of R. In a complex, bureaucratic, impersonal society and world seemingly dominated by skeptics and cynics, there's always room for the kind, the humane, and the personal. Maybe there needs to be more like us, but it's surely a privilege to be one of the few. So I'm returning to my office, talked to a young lady, and she said, when they came over, I cried. And I thought more, what a wonderful university and what a wonderful th thing this was. Someone in the future, 
will recall their college days and that this happened. Then he goes on to say, I know who you, this was your idea. I expect it was, in that case it was. And so what uh, really I bring this to is a salute to veterans by saying, Dan Keenan is here today. Dan, where are you? Stan. What, what memories, having been here 48 years, he's one of my uh, more recent graduates, you know, I, <laughs> I go all the way back to the different things that have happened, and I know most of these stories have been involved, but what better way could I accommodate the desire to recognize veterans and to get the feeling of emotion for something like that? He survived. He was one of us. And by the way, we have several graduates at the university who are on Iwo Jima. One of them is still living. And I went back to Iwo Jima with one of them, and he died not too long thereafter. So with veterans, again, as the Greatest Generation Foundation, I have the privilege of representing us all. And I'm so proud of our ROTC students and otherwise. And Professor, I'm not the one to start it or finish it, so I'll turn it back to you and see if there's any other questions. Well, so I, th I think we have time for a few more, if, the, if there are, and, and let me get on. One of my professors speaking here, again, had a major story <laughs> in the paper about his service in the Army. And uh, he and I have had a long time together and have had a lot of relationships military-wise. Dr. Heilman, one of the things that you touched on was uh, the impact of the military on life after military. I know in my case, it was very important. Would you elaborate a little bit more about such things as attitude, skills, that the military taught you as well as is taught essentially to all veterans that carry it throughout their life and how they make a difference? Yes, I think what it really does is to bring you out of your shell. I grew up in a little rural Kentucky Baptist church and most of my religion was what you didn't do. And if you didn't do this, you didn't do that, didn't do that, you got a great place in heaven. <laughs> I found out in the Marine Corps, and I wasn't being preached to, and my pastor's here today, so he's preached to me a little better than that. I learned that goodness came from what you did, not by what you didn't do. And I think that's the principle, because you're immediately surrounded by people you never knew before. I didn't know what a Catholic was, I didn't know what a Jew was, I didn't know any of the other religions. Didn't matter, because I had all the answers anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and that amalgamates soon. 
you know, and, and back in my day, we had overcome, we had black platoons and white platoons in the Marine Corps. I didn't understand that because my father, being a tenant farmer, worked with four black tenant farmers. And I, we didn't think anything different about them, and so I go into the Marine Corps and we're segregated. Well, a lot of other segregation took place. But in the meantime, you were in foxholes and airplanes, you were in all kind of activities, seeing my Navy doctor here. I was on a troop ship for 40, for, for 55 days with 400 Marines in the hole. We had a submarine attack, suicide plane attack. I finally found out that the Navy deserved those little battle stars they had on their ribbons. I thought all they did was haul Marines to the beaches. <laughs> you learn. You, you learn, you, you, there's no way you can read it in books. In fact, I never read books until I, I stayed many hours in the chow line, began to think. I flunked algebra twice, so I took it through the Marine Corps Institute and made A's because I could study it in the chow line. Most people who have been to the military don't understand the principle of the chow line, but, uh, or why you're waiting three days to get on a ship to go to battle. It's always hurry up and wait. Those are principles. And, but the matter of integrity, truth, trust, you get all that in the military. Incidentally, as much as anything, but it's there. You grow up, you mature. As the people say, I saw one, that pastor I left, or I left some, I don't know whether I left you one or not, but I will, but they, uh, People who went into battle cite things they never dreamed of that come back to them. I have one, and I won't add to this, but have a good close friend who's still living. He landed on three island, four islands in the South Pacific without ever coming back. The original landing, Guadalcanal, Tinian, Saipan, Iwo Jima, who was finally wounded on Iwo Jima. Only way he could come back to the States was to get wounded because they needed those Marines. And when I was in boot camp, it was supposed to be 16 weeks. They said, folks, we're cutting it back six, uh, cutting it back to 12 weeks because we got a lot of Marines being killed. They actually told us that. We got to get you out somewhere and while we were swimming in the pool training, because we're all going aboard ship, we had one of our 60 Marines drown. The sergeant called us in and said, I know that this is disconcerting. Well, it certainly was. <laughs> we all had to stay in the pool and he pushed us back in. One guy never finally came up. He said, here's my answer. If we did not demand of you what we've just demanded, well, we lost one. You're on a troop ship, you get torpedoed, you hadn't gone through all this training, we lose you all. Well, there was no TV that evening, so we accepted it and went about our way. That's, in many ways, that's not what the military would like to think of itself, but you go to the maximum on whatever you're doing and learn the best, and you follow orders, because somebody was just asking about following orders. Whatever they say, one of the principles of the Marine Corps, already be organized. 
don't wait until you're on the beach and say, they're shooting at us, we better get organized. <laughs> and that's principle. Let's have one more question. Or if not, Bruce, thank you very much. I would like to thank the professor and thank all of you because we went from a class and my class of 19 to this group and I've enjoyed it as much as you have. And I thank you all, a lot of my good close friends, all of your friends, thank you so much.